Well, it's good to be here this morning and, uh, and I welcome you. Uh, my name is Nathan and um, I look forward to sharing God's Word with you this morning. I have to begin though, uh, as I've been preparing um, for this sermon, um, it's caught me at a, a particularly um, weak time, I would say personally. Um, I find myself exhausted at the moment. And as I began preparing and thinking upon this uh, bit of scripture, uh, it's been over a month now, I've sort of been mulling over it. Uh, it's been incredibly challenging um, for my own faith and, and for where I'm at. Uh, so you better believe that as I preach it, I'm preaching it to me as much as I'm preaching it to you. Um, so let's get started. Memento mori. Memento mori. This is a Latin phrase that means remember death. In his small book titled Letters to Our Children on What Really Matters, Peter Kreeft says this, Death, our own death, puts life into proper perspective. Things that seemed important recede into triviality when you're dying. Things like fame and money and stuff. And things we usually ignore, things like love, trust, Honesty, self-giving, and forgiveness, these stand out as infinitely more important in light of death. Psalm 49 puts it this way. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Psalm 49. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So that they should live on forever and not see decay? For all can see that the wise die that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their house forever, their dwellings for endless generations. Though they had named lands after them, people, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. But the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase. For they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. Memento mori. Suddenly, when you consider death or even your own death, life comes into perspective. The realities, the things that are most precious come into perspective. Well, this morning I'm picking up in our series in the Gospel of John, and you might think, what a morbid beginning, Gilmore. 
But my hope in the end is that remembering death today will be a great clarifier for life. In our series in John, we finished in chapter 6, where Jesus made the claim that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat his flesh and drink his blood gain eternal life and will be raised up at the last day. I've got a question. How are you going with that? That sermon and that day will ever be etched in my memory because it, it awed me. It, it gobsmacked me. How is it that Jesus Christ can say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? How is it that he could so much be part of me as a human that as flesh, as food and water go into my body and become part of my body, that Christ himself would do that and that we could partake in Christ in, in that sort of way? That's gobsmacking. I'm hoping that you're still grappling with it. I'm hoping that the rest of the, your days you'll be grappling with it as you consider the joining together of a person with Christ Jesus. This week I was, uh, I was at Year 5 camp and I got to share with them about uh, the narrow path and the wide path. The wide path leads to destruction, the narrow path uh, that leads to life. And, uh, and I talked about trying to have a foot in both camps. And Jesus makes it pretty clear, you just can't have a foot in both camps. You can't have a foot on the wide path and a foot on the narrow path and hope to get the best of both worlds. Uh, Jesus makes pretty clear that to follow the narrow path means saying no to the wide, easy path. And there's a sense in which the shocking words of Jesus, eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, are meant to shock us into reality. That's not where we're going today, but I, I, I encourage you, keep, keep meditating on that. Keep working that one out for the rest of your days if you follow Jesus. Well, some of the followers of Jesus back in chapter 6 found these words were too offensive, so they walked away. The 12 remained, and about six months passed from this conversation, and John now lets us in on another conversation, this time with Jesus and his brothers. Can you open up to John chapter 7? John chapter 7, and we're reading from verse 1 to 13. You'll need your Bible today. I'm going to be jumping around a little, uh, so I'd love it if you'd follow along. So John chapter 7 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear 
of the leaders. I've entitled this, uh, this sermon, Fickle Fame. Fickle Fame. Uh, because I think this is one, just one part of what's going on here in this, uh, in this scripture, in this conversation. We come to Jesus at a point in which uh, the intensity uh, for his death is starting to ramp up. So as we continue on in John chapter 7 and throughout, uh, we're going to see the intensity of attacks and hits on Jesus' life uh, and, the, and the lives of his disciples is starting to increase. It's starting to get pretty intense. Uh, he didn't want to go to Judea yet because the Jews, his own people, were waiting to take his life. Clearly, these people were in violent unbelief. But then we come to the conversation with his brothers. Now, these were his half-brothers born of Mary and Joseph. And shockingly, we find out that they didn't believe him either. It's surprising. Even their words are a little surprising, if you think about it. Um, but it's surprising because they were probably the people who'd spent the most time with him. Uh, they'd been there from somewhere around about his birth. Uh, and, uh, and had grown up with him. Um, so you would imagine that if anyone was to believe, it would be the people who were closest to him. Now, these were perhaps the people who'd lived with him, holidayed with him, feasted with him, seen his miracles, his works, and heard his words, yet they refused to believe them to be true. And it shows up, as we'll see in this conversation. I want to draw out three main ideas today. First one is festival and fame. The second is the folly of fame. And the third is belonging to another. So firstly, the festival and fame. John sets the scene up in North Galilee where Jesus was getting around. He was purposely staying away from Judea, as I said, in the south, because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. The Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near. Now, I had to do some research on this myself. I, uh, I hadn't understood exactly what this Jewish feast was. But it was one of the three uh, does anyone know what the other two might be? Shout it out if you know. Passover and Pentecost. Right. So there's these three major feasts that happen throughout the Jewish calendar. And, uh, and this was one of them, the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, this, uh, according to Josephus, uh, this was uh, the most popular because it, it was the most celebratory. Um, it was a springtime festival where God's people would live in a booth. So you can imagine sticks and leaves. Um, another activity on Year 5 camp was uh, kids making their own shelters out in the bush. So they'd go out and they'd find all these big long leaves and the designs were brilliant. Uh, they'd cover them in uh, fern branches or whatever they could find to, uh, to make a shelter. And uh, I reflected on that and went, ah, well, Feast of Booths. Uh, this is likely what it would have been like. Uh, if it was a popular city, uh, it would have been uh, sitting on the top of a person's roof. They'd build this booth and go up and live in there. Um, it's probably akin to us going camping. Uh, if you go camping, you don't live in your normal beautiful house. Uh, you live in a tent, thin walls, uh, sticks to hold it up. Um, you get the idea. Uh, but this particular feast uh, was a seven-day feast. and it, it began with a solemn day. Uh, of gathering on the first day. Uh, then the other days were spent uh, making burnt offerings and rejoicing before the Lord with the fruit of their harvest. So it was a most joyous occasion and more people attended it than any of the other feasts. As you hear, the purpose of this feast was a reminder for them that God is their God who provides for them even in a 40-year desert journey. 
So it harked back to the days where they'd been walking through the desert and uh, they didn't have the houses that they had in Egypt. Instead, they had these makeshift houses. So here they've got these makeshift houses. Uh, They're making burnt offerings to the Lord and they're remembering him. And it was an annual thing. It had to happen year after year so that they would keep it strong in their memory. You belong to God. He's your God. He looks after you. He provides for you. And he hasn't stopped. He continues to do so. Without him, they would not not have escaped Egypt and would not enjoy the blessings he provides. Here's uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Here's what it sounded like when, um, when it was first instituted. Verse 15 says this, For seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the works of your hands, and your joy will be complete. It was necessary for every man to attend these festivals, and it would have been this way, Jesus included, for their whole lives. So Jesus' brothers and Jesus would have been attending these festivals year upon year upon year. Um, We probably understand that Jesus is around 30 years old. So it's been 30 years of attending these annual festivals. They knew what it was about. They knew it was significant. They knew it was important in memory of God to remember all of God's faithfulness. And part of it was that their joy would be complete. It wasn't just a remembrance for remembrance sake. It was a remembrance for their joy. Be glad that you belong to God. Remember his faithfulness. But then, knowing all of this, Jesus' brother's advice comes to Jesus. And it seems completely contradictory. It seems like they've forgotten what it's all about. So, go back to the advice. Jesus' brothers said something to this effect. Leave here, get down to the feast, and go public, Jesus. Don't stay up here in the, uh, in the, the fringes. You've got to go public. They can see the miracles you do, Jesus. You want to be a public figure, but you can't stay here on the fringes of Galilee, up in the north. You've got to get down to the action. Get where all the people are. Go famous. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, anyone with any ambition knows this would be a sweet opportunity. Would you agree? It's the most popular festival out of all the Jewish festivals. Now's the time for Jesus to really make a name for himself. So you've got a Jewish festival plus miraculous powers to amaze people. And what does it equal? Probably lots and lots of followers. <laughs> lots and lots of people who are in, uh, attracted to uh, the, the amazing miracles of Christ. Fame. Clearly, the brothers knew that Jesus did miracles and perhaps they had been where, there when all of those followers walked away offended when Jesus talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Maybe their own reputation as Jesus' brothers may have taken a hit after he had told the people uh, about, about the uh, eating flesh and drinking blood. And this was a chance, the brothers thought, to regain some numbers and start rebuilding the family name. But John's next comment about the brothers is a sharp statement. Even his own brothers did not believe. Their advice to Jesus was akin to the temptation of Satan. If you are the son of God, prove it. Show us the cool stuff. Show me the miracles. Prove that you are 
who you say you are. And you hear a little bit of that in uh, the brother's words. Remember the purpose of the feast. Rejoice in God. Remember his faithfulness. Remember the blessings in the wilderness and his continued blessing today. Does it sound like this is what the brothers want for their brother Jesus? I don't think so. They were proving their unbelief and for the same reason Jesus had rebuked the crowds in John 6, who only followed him for his miracles, Jesus rejected their advice. You're following me because you've seen miracles and eaten the bread and the fish, but you've missed it. It's here that I want to delve into the fickle nature of fame as we see Jesus' reply. So secondly, the fickleness of fame. The Oxford Dictionary defines fame as the state of being known or talked about by many people, especially on account of notable achievements. So in their unbelief, this is just what the brothers wanted for Jesus and perhaps for themselves. If everyone at the festival could see your miracles, they'd follow you, Jesus. What about this? If everyone at the festival knew we were the brothers of the man who did the miracles, imagine that. Imagine the notoriety. Imagine being able to be called the brother of Jesus, knowing that he's done all these incredible miracles. See, uh, fame has this sort of appeal, not just for the movie star, not just for perhaps a politician, uh, not just for a YouTuber, but for also every sincere heart, myself included. Another word for fame could be the praise of man, seeking after the praise of man. See, I don't think there's a single person alive that wouldn't admit to trying to be someone, to be someone who others would look to, to be someone who others would talk about, to be someone who others might see so that you could tell of all your achievements. For some, it's the pride of telling others about their achievements and praising themselves. For others, it's the pride of seeking out praise from others. For still others, it's the fame of being connected to someone who's famous on account of their successes. Fame has some classic and common inner workings, the seeking after fame. As I've thought about it, here's just a few. Uh, I'm sure you could probably think of more ways that fame um, is deceptive in, in, its, uh, in its pursuit. Fame promises that you'll be known widely by many people who'll give you praise when really all they know is your achievements, successes, and the facades that you present to them. Many people know your achievements, but nobody really knows you. This is what fame would seem to promise. Fame is speedy and itches to be seen at every opportunity. It's rarely slow, wise, and able to bear fruit in its time. Fame promises a reputation that spreads further than any person could possibly go in reality. In the pursuit of fame, the realities of time and place are, an irrit are irritating limits that stop you from having success. Time and place means you can only be in one place at any given time. Fame would make you think you could be here and have your name spread everywhere, further than Toowoomba, further than Australia, even into the world. It's possible. Fame promises contentment in the praise and adulation of the people around you. But when you arrive, you're only left wanting more. wonder if you've ever felt this before. So in this, fame breeds discontentment, not actual contentment. Fame is competitive. It's always seeking to one-up 
another. Fame feels true, but in reality, it's often masking the truth for a false reality so that the famous facade can be upheld. If you can think of anything else that as you've sought after the praise of men, uh, these are ones... I was only able to think of these because I've probably been tempted to them throughout my life. Sadly, and I feel ashamed to say that. The, the pursuit of the praise of people, the pursuit of the praise of uh, men around me, ugh, it's ghastly, it's an evil beast that promises much but delivers disaster. It's most tricky it's a deceptive pursuit that leaves a person empty, exhausted, and lifeless. Yet if we're honest, honest, all of us have sought the praise of the people around us in one way, shape, or form. Well, in this passage, Jesus refuses to be suckered into it. He refuses to participate in gaining followers who love his miracles but don't love him. It's not anything new, as we'll find out later. Here's how Jesus replied to his brothers. Go back with me in John chapter 7. My time is not yet here for you any time will do. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet come. After this, he, said he stayed in Galilee. He just refused to be drawn into the temptation of fickle fame. He knew that heading to Judea was heading closer to his death. Memento Mori meant much to Jesus at this point. He was remembering his death. He knew his death was coming. That's something his brothers didn't know. They had no idea because they were trapped in the world. They were trapped in their own unbelief. He wasn't going to do that a moment too soon. For the brothers, any time would do because fame is itching to be seen at every opportunity. For the brothers, the world couldn't hate them because they never spoke the truth in a way that would offend others. Their fame and reputation was too valuable for truth to be declared. For Jesus, he was an ambassador from his father. He knew whom he belonged to. And he refused to cover the truth for the sake of his own reputation. What was the result? The world hated him for it. So he stayed in Galilee while his brothers went up to the festival. But it then goes on, it says later on, Jesus decided to go up to the festival. Now, if Jesus had acted on his brother's advice, when it was time to go up to that feast, a grand entrance would have been prime. <laughs> Smack out a few miracles, lots of people amazed, all the Jews would be loving Jesus again. But you'll notice that's exactly not what he did. Instead, he went up in secret. I listened to one person say that, uh, that uh, he went through Samaria, so if you go through Samaria, um, that was the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get on together. Uh, so the, the Jews would have found some other route to get around Samaria back down to Judea. Uh, but Jesus apparently went up through Samaria so that he could take the most hidden route that he could, the, the most quiet route that he could. People were looking for him, but he remained hidden because it wasn't yet his time. So finally, what is the antidote for the sin-sick, unbelieving heart that seeks after fame and the praise of men? I want to suggest that it's belonging to another. 
the, uh, the New City Catechism puts it this way. What is our only hope in life and death? It's that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to the living God. Say it again. What is our only hope in life and death? It is that we are not our own, but we belong in body and soul to the living God. What's the antidote to seeking after the fame of man, the praise of man? The antidote is knowing that you belong not to yourself, but instead you belong to God. Earlier in John 5, Jesus made it pretty clear. This is in the message version. It says this, I'm not interested in crowd approval. And do you know why? Because I know you and your crowds. I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. I came with the authority of my father and you either dismiss me or avoid me. If another came acting self-important, you'd welcome him with open arms. How do you expect to get anywhere with God when you spend all your time jockeying for position with each other, ranking your rivals and ignoring God? In the NIV, verse 44 says this, How can you believe if you accept praise from another or from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? If your heart is sick this morning, seeking the praise of man and forgetting God, I want to say there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Turn now from the praise of man to the praise of God. What if at the end of your life, God himself, the one to whom you belong, said these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Would it be enough? My encouragement for you this morning is live in such a way that you long for his praise. I want to take a few moments just to listen into how Jesus lived this. And this is where we jump around in Scripture. So if you've got your Bible there, uh, go back to John chapter 4, verse 34. Listen in on the way that Jesus lived this reality out. He wasn't interested in the praises of men, but he was interested in something better than that. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Did Jesus just belong to himself? No. <laughs> he didn't just belong to himself. He didn't come on his own authority. He came on the express mission from his father. And it was his sustenance to do the will of his father. What about chapter 5 verse 17? But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now, and I am working. Huh. Doesn't sound like he's on his own. Doesn't sound like he's making a name for himself. No, he's getting about, working out where his father's working, and then getting about doing the same work. He just delights in doing what his father is doing. What about verse 19? So Jesus, chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You hear it again. He's deferring this honor to his Father. I'm just doing what my dad says to do. 
and I love it. Verse 30, chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 36, 5 verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus does not belong to himself. He belongs to his Father. And guess what? When you believe in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus' words, when we act on Jesus' words, you get the same honor to be the son of the benevolent Father God. Just as Jesus delighted in being a sent representative of his father, he seemed obsessed with the honor of his father, but it was to his great joy and delight. To do this, what does it mean for us? Well, later in John 6, Jesus says it clearly again. The work of God is this. To believe in the one who he has sent. The work of God is not just the work of a pastor. The work of God is not just the work of a, uh, a leader in the church. The work of God is not just a missionary going over to some other country. The work of God is this, and it covers everyone. Believe in the one who he has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe even to the point where his words... Change the way that you live. Where you believe every part of what he says and you go and live it because you trust him implicitly. I want to circle back now to the beginning. Memento mori. Remember death. After Christ's death and resurrection, there was a small group of people sitting in an upper room. Let's go there now. Acts chapter 1 verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. I might ask the uh, band if they can come up, prepare to finish in worship. It says these, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The very ones who'd given Jesus the worst advice they could ever give. The very ones who were the unbelieving brothers. Here they were, sitting in the upper room, praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit. If their brothers turned and believed in Christ and trusted him with their whole lives, then there's hope for us. If the brothers, the ones who had spent most of their lives with Jesus, perhaps you've spent most of your life around Jesus, perhaps you've spent most of your life in a Christian home, But you've never stopped to go, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe in every word that he says. And it's going to change the way that I live. There's hope for you. Perhaps if you've found yourself chasing after and seeking after the praise of man, even this week, there's hope for you. Jesus wants all of you. He wants your affections. And ultimately, he wants the greatest reward that God could give. 
That's his own phrase. But at the end of your days, remember death. At the end of your days, you would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant.